Check. There we are. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you're eager, Matt, because there is so much to say in a mere 40 minutes to say it. Uh, So we need to jump right in. Um, Today, we are going to be reading from the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we began a new series called Becoming Good at People. And what that means, it's not something mechanical and cold and like how to win friends and influence people type thing. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what it means to love one another, become those kinds of people who love one another, which is to say to become the church of Jesus Christ. Now, There are all sorts of skills uh, that we need in order to love one another well, and, oh, I was about to say they're up there. They were up there last week, weren't they? No? Doesn't matter. We're going through them each. Thank you. There we are. Uh, So last week, Matt uh, dealt with curiosity. This week, we're going to deal with comfort. And as you can see in the passage that I just read, the doctrine here is extraordinarily plain, namely, that God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort one another in our, excuse me, others in their afflictions. And I'd like to consider this under two headings today, and it's going to be very simple. Number one, the affliction of the saints, and then number two, the comfort of the saints. The affliction, and then the comfort. So let's begin with the affliction of the saints. Now, one thing in this passage that is abundantly clear is that, I hope you heard it, is that the lives of the saints of God are filled to the brim with affliction. In verse 4, it says that God comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Verse 5 says that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Verse 7, Paul acknowledges to the Corinthians... That, that the Corinthians share in our sufferings. Now, I start here to try to establish that because it's very tempting to believe that because God promises comfort that our lives as Christians will be free of suffering or at least include minimal suffering. But you can't deny that in this passage, Paul clearly teaches that our life in this age is shot through with afflictions. And notice that he says, any affliction. I'm not just talking about the tragic, life-altering kinds of um, afflictions like death or poverty or, um, or 
uh, whatever else. So whatever else bows our knees in sorrow uh, in this life. Like, it's, it's anything that contradicts the life that we wish that we had. Any sort of affliction falls into this category. And I have to emphasize this here because there's many Christians who seem to believe that suffering is some kind of aberration of the life of faith. Or somehow not part of God's plan for us. And that, hear me, that, according to the scriptures, is patently false and, I would say, increasingly harmful the more you believe it. I mean, don't you remember, th- think back to Peter's first letter to the congregation, to, to his congregation. Remember what he said in First uh, Peter 4.12? He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't, don't be surprised. When the affliction comes, nothing strange is happening to you. When we suffer as God's people, there is nothing strange happening. This is the way of our lives. And this is a conviction that needs to work its way all the way down into the core of our understanding. Now, I said earlier that to think otherwise is harmful. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. My wife used to be a pediatric ICU, pediatric ICU nurse uh, down at Scottish Rite. And that is not a job that you take when you need every story to end happy, because it surely does not. And um, one family in particular was admitted whose five-year-old daughter had been suffering long with a brain tumor. And they were Christians who believed that suffering was not part of God's plan and that God wills healing on all who believe that he can heal and that suffering is just a test of our faith and that if we claim the right promises and believe without doubt that God will heal, then God will heal. And so their pastors came in and made such claims and spoke such promises. They claimed her healing. They spoke her healing. They went so far as to inform the nurses and the doctors that this room is a good news only zone. No medical professional was allowed to come in and say anything other than your daughter will be restored to full health. Now, I'm sorry to tell you that she did not, in fact, survive. God did not heal her broken body. And that is tragic, no doubt. But in my mind, what is more tragic is the awful burden that was placed upon those parents. The only conclusion, supposing they believed what they believed, the only conclusion they could come to is, this was our fault. And if that's the case, I don't know how faith can remain intact after such a tragedy. 
If that's the case, then God is not loving. God is a moral monster. It's like he's saying, I have the power to heal, all bound up in myself, but it's up to you in your weakness to unlock that power. And if you falter, even at one point, the vault stays shut. Now, just to be abundantly clear, I don't fault the parents here. If I were in that situation, just like any of us, I'm sure that I'd be tempted and willing to believe and do some profoundly unhealthy things if it meant that my child could be restored to me. I fault the pastors who taught them such unbiblical and devastating doctrines. Suffering is not an aberration of faith. It is the expectation That is what Paul is teaching us here. Otherwise, how do you explain the vocation of Paul himself? Do you remember he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians? The the risen Christ appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and said, you belong to me now. And so he got up and he walked on his way to Damascus, being led by the hand because he was blind. And God spoke in a vision to Ananias, who was in Damascus at the time, and said, listen, Paul is coming and you must pray for him. To which Ananias said, no, no, uh, he's, <laughs> he was rightfully fearful. This is a man who has persecuted Christians. And do you remember what God said to Ananias? He said, Paul is my chosen servant. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Suffering was part and parcel of the vocation of the Apostle Paul, given straight to him from the mouth of Jesus. Even more to the point, if suffering is an aberration of faith, how do you explain the life of Jesus himself? As Revelation teaches us, he was the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. And if you go backwards towards the edge of time and you strain your ear and you listen, you will hear the inner counsels of the Trinity saying, the Christ must suffer. Christ suffered fatigue and hunger and sorrow and physical abuse. He suffered death by means of one of the most awful things the bent human imagination has ever devised, crucifixion. You must hear this, people of God, affliction, suffering, sorrow, all of this is not a sign that something has gone wrong. It's a sign that you are a member of God's family and that you are living as your Lord did. So when you suffer affliction of any kind, you are in good company. All the saints who have walked before you have known the life of suffering, and so has your Lord, the one on whose life we pattern our own after. Now, very quickly, I know someone's going to object and say, yes, but but there's verses that contradict everything you just said. Even the teaching of Jesus, there's a couple places where Jesus himself teaches the opposite of what you're saying. Now, I need a whole sermon to answer that objection rightfully. I'll just... Right now, all I can say is this. 
If it were true that power was available to heal and make wealthy and do all manner of things to stem the tide of suffering, then what you would expect to see in the Bible is that when these apostles are writing to their congregations, who in large part are suffering people, you would expect them to teach that they ought to invoke such faith, invoke such words. On the contrary, the majority of the epistles in the New Testament are written to suffering people, and the apostles writing them have a very different word than that to these Christians, namely, be patient and endure, because Christ is coming. They say, don't escape your suffering, endure it, and all shall be well. So, all this to say, we who are Christians are a company of the afflicted. And now that we have that established, let me hasten to add that suffering is not the end of the story. For those of us in affliction and doubt and despair and sickness and any manner of difficulty, Paul teaches us in our passage today that comfort is indeed available. So, let's move on to the second point, which is the comfort of the saints. Now, notice how Paul says it in verses 3 and 4. He says, <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now, he says that our Lord is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Notice the coordination between the words all. God possesses all comfort for all our affliction. There is not one sorrow that we bear for which God does not have a comfort perfectly matched. So, the natural question I have upon reading that is, how? How is it that God comforts us in our affliction? If we can't be expected to be physically delivered from every affliction, by the way, let me just... Does he, it's up to him. Yes, sometimes he does. Sometimes he heals us. Sometimes he rescues us out of the pit in, in very tangible ways. But sometimes he does not. So in that case, how does he comfort us in the midst of our suffering? Well, if we ask our passage that question, here's what it says. First, God himself is the headwaters of all comfort. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4 that I just read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. The first and primary comfort for suffering Christians comes directly from the hand of God. If you take in the whole scriptures, I can see at least two ways that God delivers his comfort to his people. By words and by other people. Now, there are many more than that, but I'm just going to focus on these two. Let me spend some time with each of them. So first, how does God comfort us? He comforts us with words. And to further complicate this, I'm going to break this section down into three. Um, I can see at least three kinds of words that God gives. The first, he comforts us with words of grace. Paul begins this passage about comfort by giving us one of the most magnificent names of God that I know of, the Father of mercies. So when his people are afflicted, he speaks mercy and grace to them. And do you remember when Jesus was teaching <clears throat> on one occasion, and 
several men tore open the roof where he was sitting and lowered their friend, who had not been able to walk for some time, right down in front of Jesus. And obviously, clearly, their expectation was, you, you need to heal him. That's, nobody says anything, but that's what else would they want? And what else would they be expecting of Jesus, who has a reputation as a healer? And yet, do you remember the first thing Jesus says? Your sins are forgiven. He gives him a word of grace. Your sins are forgiven. Now, at those words, the Pharisees get very upset, very angry, because who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Now, stand up and walk. Now, if you and I were sitting there, we probably wouldn't be having the same problems as the Pharisees were having. We'd probably see Jesus say to the suffering man, your sins are forgiven, and think, that's it? That, what, about, what about his body? What about his suffering? Clearly, he needs healing, and your response is, your sins are forgiven? And now, the next thing I'm going to say is, pure speculation, but suppose the Pharisees weren't there getting in a huff about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Is it too much to assume that without provocation that the interaction with the hobbled man would have ended after your sins are forgiven? Maybe. I don't know. But we look at that and we say, insufficient. But Jesus' word of grace is far more valuable than we could ever know. If we're thinking properly, it's more than enough to comfort us in the deepest suffering. If Jesus is to be believed, then there is coming a day called resurrection in which all our physical maladies are cast off, where all of our sorrows will turn to joy, where every relationship dismantled by death is gloriously restored, our afflictions today last 80 or 90 years, and even if we lay our head in the grave full of sorrows, we shall awake to the beatific vision of Jesus himself, who for eternity will never cease to do us good in the glorious restoration of all things, world without end. And don't you remember the only ship that can carry us to those blessed shores? It is the atoning blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins and the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a word of grace with which God comforts us in our affliction. Your sins are forgiven. And just to add more to this, do you remember Paul's affliction? Later in the same letter, 2 Corinthians 12, um, he has some sort of affliction that he calls the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is uh, because he never actually names it, but we know enough to know that it was extraordinarily grievous to him. In fact, it was something that hindered him from his ministry. He could preach more. He could write more. If only he did not have this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. And so God, excuse me, Paul begs on three occasions Three seasons for God to heal this thorn in the flesh. How does God respond? He responds with a word of grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. Perfect. 
and weakness. And if you know the passage, you know that that word was enough to make Paul rejoice in his weakness and boast of his afflictions. So he gives us words of grace. Number two, how does God comfort us in our afflictions? He also gives us words of providence. The Bible teaches that all suffering comes to us from the hand of God. Now, some people might argue with me there and say, God does not cause, cause all suffering. He allows it, does not cause it. And I would respond that I don't think that softens the difficulty at all, I mean, in any way. Whether he causes it or allows it, the affliction still comes through his hand. And I know why people hesitate to believe what the scriptures say on this count, because you or someone you know have a long line of sufferings and afflictions that stretches out into your past, some of them unspeakable. And if God is the cause of those sufferings, then he is a monster. And I admit, it it is a very difficult doctrine. But if you can get past the sour outer shell The inside is unspeakably sweet. Let me try to let me try to show you. If we're to believe the scriptures, then we know God is good. Maybe above everything else, He is good. Remember, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God said, "No, no man can see my glory and live. Therefore, I will let all of my goodness pass before you." And, and as he lets his goodness pass before Moses, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord, merciful, righteous. And, and all of these things are a summary. Goodness is a summary of every attribute of God. He is good to his core. And that means whatever providence comes from his hand also proceeds from that goodness. It may be a hard providence that comes to you. No doubt. But it cascades down to you from a spring of goodness and not malevolence. I can remember bringing my daughter to get her shots at the doctor when she was very young. And he came in with a tray that held four needles on it. And my daughter wasn't that old, but she was old enough to know that's going to hurt me. So she began to cry, and in her fearful sorrow, she looked up at me. Now, how would she have felt if she looked into my face and saw fear in my face? Or she asked me why this man was going to hurt her, and I said, it's just a result of sin in the world. (laughs) But I'll allow it. In that case, her fear is doubled and tripled. But if she looked into my face and I said, sweetheart, I know this is going to hurt. But I'm the one who asked him to do this. It's going to be okay. It is for your good, I promise. Even if you can't see it right now, it is for your good. 
Yes. Now, supposing I'm not a scoundrel and she believes that I love her and have her best interests at heart, then even in the difficulty, she will find some comfort. And I don't know of a more comforting word of providence that God gives to us than this. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a good word. So God comforts us with words of providence. Third, God comforts us with words of fellowship. Look at verse 5. He says, For as we abundantly share in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. When we share in Christ's sufferings, which is to say we are made partakers of his affliction, we are also made partakers of his comfort. I don't know of a better explanation for how this happens than to hear Paul speak of it in Philippians chapter 3. Here, Paul has been speaking of all the earthly achievements that he has garnered uh, in his life and how because he got up off of his face... And the road, uh, at the road to Damascus and followed Jesus, he has lost all of it. And he says this. Listen to the words of fellowship. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, here it is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Paul says that by losing all that was precious to him, he shares in Christ's sufferings. And the translation that I prefer there is to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And don't you realize, people of God, don't you realize that by suffering any affliction, you are entering into the fellowship of Christ, which cannot be known by any other means. And Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, not because they were earning him something in God's sight, but because they were the path to fellowship with Jesus, which he longed for more than anything. And so when affliction comes into our lives, we must be careful. Our flesh wants to say, God is a beast for bringing such things to bear upon me. But Paul suffers profoundly, and his conclusion is this. The Father is very fond of me. He knows Jesus means more to me than anything, and he has granted me an occasion to know his glory and his nearness. Oh, the Father is very fond of me. Okay, that was too brief to do justice to all the words with which God comforts us. But our passage plainly teaches that when we are in need of comfort, it is the Father of mercies who comes to us and begins the process. But the flow of that comfort is not meant to be dammed up inside of us into a deep pool next to which we luxuriate. We are meant to be the banks on the stream that direct the flow past us. We, we, we are refreshed by it, but ultimately it passes through us. And where is that comfort meant to go? It's meant to go to others. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, that little transitional phrase, so that, explains the purpose of God's comfort to us, that we may be able to comfort anyone in any affliction. So the second way, according to this passage, that God comforts us is through other people. Their words and their other people. And God gives us a gift in our afflictions, comfort. But that gift is not a keeper. It's for re-gifting, to put a different spin on that term. And here's where everything comes together with respect to being good at people. If the first point of my sermon was true, namely that suffering is to be expected and a normal part of the Christian life, then God is giving us the vocation of comfort to one another. And the scope of that comfort is astonishing. Watch. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Again, we're not just talking about afflictions of tragic proportions like death and disease and poverty, although those are certainly included. He says, we are to comfort those in any affliction. So that means that anything that comes to you, any providence that comes to you that somehow makes you unhappy or dismayed, no matter how small, God sends his people out with comfort to address it. So, that means we must become 
virtuosos of comfort because we don't know which part of the symphony of comfort that we'll be required to play. We find out in the moment. And that could be terrifying. I mean, as a general rule, I'm, I'm, most of us, I think, are Americans in here. As a general rule, Americans, we're pretty uncomfortable with people's afflictions. We're pretty uncomfortable with people's sufferings. <clears throat> we don't know what to say. We don't know how to act. And so now we're being invited by Paul to cast off that cultural restraint and become virtuosos of comfort to people who are afflicted. And we won't even know what's required of us to play until we show up. Now, I was talking to Matt earlier before, and he's like, okay, you, yes, but you can't just talk about ideas. You have to give some people something. You have to give them something. Okay, so here, here I go. Here's, here. this one's for Matt. To, I, they're literally, that's the thing, is to be a virtuoso means you show up, you hear the key, and you start playing, right? But, um, but here's, here's a couple of things to hold on to. Um, the Jews have a practice called sitting shiva. You know this? When one of the members of their community has fallen into suffering of some kind, um, they simply go and sit with them. Now, if that's not part of your culture, that's going to seem weird. But the point of it, which I find very beautiful, the point of it is that presence is enough. Just to be there with people. Nobody has the right things to say, just to be clear. Nobody has them. We all think that there's something you can say, and there's not. There really isn't. Now, I I said before that there are words of grace, and there are words of providence, there are words of fellowship. Let me just be real clear here, very practical, that In my experience, maybe you have a different experience, but in my experience, those words are best left to God to give to us because when we say them to each other, they end up oftentimes increasing the disorientation. I'm suffering. God means it for good. Yeah, I know, I know. But it falls flat. So presence is enough. And then what words do you say? I mean, just, it, it's easy enough. It's, just, it's, it's, it's as simple as this. I don't know what to say. But I love you. And I'm for you. I wish I could fix this. I, I don't know how. But I'm here. Now, talking about being virtuosos of comfort. Showing up and just playing. Natural question is, how am I supposed to do that? Well, Paul is clear that we have the resources for this. He says, how do we do it? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Which is to say, our invitation here is not to draw from a well that is dry and then do our, and then do our best to convince the recipient of our comfort that it is in fact full when they can see plainly that it's totally empty. Now, the comfort has already been given to us, which is to say, we know how to play the music if only we stop for a moment and remember. Now, I remember watching a documentary one time about an orchestral conductor who decided to put on a concert, and he chose one of Mozart's concertos 
as his piece. And in order to draw a big crowd, he hired a famous pianist um, who was a Mozart virtuoso to be front and center. But as the circumstances dictated, this pianist was not able to practice with the orchestra. And so she practiced on her own, which of course the conductor was fine with because she's a genius, she'll be fine. So the first time she played with the orchestra was on opening night. The lights went down, curtains rose, house was full, hush fell over the crowd, the conductor raised his wand. There was this moment of silence, and then the orchestra began to play the opening movement. And they weren't even one bar in when the pianist realized she had practiced the wrong concerto. <laughs> now, I wish I was able to convey to you the, the fear and the pan- maybe I don't have, maybe you're feeling it, but the fear and the panic that was on her face. Then in a matter of seconds, it gives way to what I assume was shame and embarrassment because she puts her hand over her face. I mean, that's the stuff that nightmares are made of, right? <laughs> Everybody's watching and you are unprepared. Oh my gosh, what sends chills down my spine every time I watch this? Excuse me. What sends chills down my spine every time I watch this is what the conductor does. She's sitting at her piano right next to him. And she lets him know that I need your attention here. He's, you know, doing his thing as a conductor. And she tells him that she was expecting to play another concerto. What's astonishing? is that this man was completely unaffected by the news. Like, I think if I was in that situation, I would be tempted to drop the wand. We need a little intermission here. We'll be back. But he never stops. He just smiles at her and says, you can do it. (laughs) You played this piece before. You can do it. You are a Mozart genius. And then he doesn't even give her a second thought. He just goes back to his orchestra and keeps driving them on to the place where she is supposed to start. So the pianist closes her eyes, and you can tell she's in great concentration. And she sits, at, she sits there as the orchestra is rapidly closing in on the place where she is supposed to start playing. She places her hand on the, pianos, on the piano, and she plays the tune flawlessly from memory. it's an astonishing, I mean, it's astonishing. And the only way that she could do such a thing in that particular concert was, was because that concerto was already inside of her. She thought she knew what she was stepping into that day, but she did not. Something altogether unexpected was expected of her. And to me, there really isn't a better way to think about our ministry to one another in our affliction. There will surely be a moment where we find ourselves as God's people in the presence of someone who requires our comfort and maybe in a way that we feel completely incompetent to give it, but the Father is unaffected by it. He simply raises his wand and leads the orchestra on. And when the moment comes for you to play, you will find that it was inside you all along. Because he has given you the comfort with which we are to comfort others. And if you've been following me this whole time, what this really means is that our vocation as Christians 
is to suffer for the sake of others' comfort. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. And brothers and sisters, isn't that the great calling of our lives? To be made like Jesus, whom we love? In another letter, Paul explains that the goal of our discipleship and the leading of the Spirit is to make us into the image of Christ, representations of him, visual representations of him in this world. Now, we tend to think that means being morally virtuous and living under the law of love and such things. And it surely, for sure, means that. But there's more to it. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we are not far from the center of his identity. And so when we suffer vicariously so that others may be comforted, we are being made in a very real way into the image of Christ. Because what makes all of this possible is that we ourselves have been made the recipients of his everlasting comfort, which has come to us through the horror of his suffering and death. So, brothers and sisters, let us be remade into the image of the suffering Christ so that we may comfort one another with the comfort with which we have been comforted in Christ. Now, we come to this table as we do each and every week. This table, in addition to being a physical, visual sign, is also a word. It is a word of grace, and it is a word of providence. It is a word of fellowship. I know there are people sitting here right now who are in the depths of sorrow, and confusion, and affliction, and disorientation. And I don't have the power to fix that. But when you come to this table, the word for you is this. Your sins are forgiven. Whatever has come to you today has come to you out of the springs of God's goodness. So, brothers and sisters of God, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it's very, um, it's very plain to us what suffering is about. It's very plain to us when we think about it, when we read about it, but when we are cast into the middle of it, when our afflictions uh, seem to be drowning us, when our disorientation seems to be complete, all of this is f- easily forgotten. So what we need, Father, is for you to extend your kindness to us. Lift us up out of the pit. Now, I, I pray especially for those folks who are in my hearing, who are in the midst of affliction. There, there are many of us, I'm sure, who are walking through our lives right now on the heights of joy, but there are brothers and sisters among us who are suffering with some kind of affliction. And I pray that you would grant us courage to speak to them, courage to be with them, and grace 
to weep with them. Now we love you. Dear Father of mercies, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, if you belong to him, this is your